Welcome to Blacklisted Remarks. My name is Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Field, aka Santa Claus. Today, I forgot to dye my beard, but I am um, I'm gonna do that this afternoon. I believe uh, that bleaching. Bleaching? I don't know. I don't know what you would do to get it snowy white. You wouldn't know what to do with the beard. And beard no, hand. I wouldn't. That that hurts. We're starting off on a good foot, <laughs> everybody. So today's topic, today's discussion is whether mental states are a choice, whether it's within our control to manipulate and adjust mental states, should you, and what are the ramifications of doing so. Um, the, the prevalence of this is, I guess, loosely related to Buddhism, but personally where it came from was, um, there's a movie called Bleed for This with Miles Teller, and at the end of the film, uh, it's a boxing film. At the end of the film, the David like Pacienza or something I don't know how to pronounce his name is being interviewed, and the interviewee asks him, uh, "What's the biggest lie you were told uh, in in your industry?" He said, "It's not that simple." And she goes, "What do you mean?" He says, "No, that's the biggest lie I've been told is that it's not that simple." He says, "It is that simple." And he kind of discussed how um, people are going to tell you that you can't do something or that it's, it's too complicated, that it, it, it's above your pay grade, beyond your scope of understanding, but it is that simple, just simply execute. And that resonated with me more than uh, Gary Vee yelling at me through a YouTube video, <laughs> saying relatively the same thing yeah. over and over and over again. Um, and that's her transition. Did you just say there are more effective ways to communicate than yelling? I did, but I didn't mean it, so it's okay. I'm going to write that down. More effective. Okay, keep going. So, I thought that was interesting, so I kind of tucked that away. Um, had a lot of individual personal experiences, and then somebody close to me um, once gave me uh, essentially an ultimatum. Oh. You can choose to currently live in the way that you're living. Mm-hmm and you will lose this, or you can choose to live this way and keep this. And I realized that by choosing to keep the thing that I wanted, I was actively not choosing to live in a depressed state of mind. I was in a severe amount of depression, um, slowly working my way out of it, but I, I realized that by choosing one thing, or by not choosing to keep my mind in, in a particular area, I was also not choosing depression. And then I thought about this for a second, and I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder if to be sustained in depression is to be a choice. Now everybody gets anxious, everybody gets depression. The comments yes. below the video exactly. started exploding. Oh yes, well, because I posted something a while back on my Instagram uh, about quitting my SSRI, and... Um, how I think that it wasn't the answer for me, and I got a lot of comments. Some people were positive, but a lot of people were very negative, saying that you know there are genuine uses for medication, as though I was unaware that there were genuine <laughs> uses for medication. Wait, wait, <laughs> genuine use? Okay, two things I've learned so far. Yeah, today. genuine, uses, genuine for medication. uses for medication, and there are more effective ways to communicate about healing. Yeah, so what I'm saying isn't that depression is somebody who's like, you know what, today, I think I want to be depressed. 
Because it happens to people. People become depressed or they become anxious. They have a panic attack or all these things. But to sustain that state of being, I think, and I'm not sold on it yet, that's what we'll talk about today, requires sustained conscious energy to create that state of depression. Okay, before we go any further, like... I have so much to say on that, okay. but I the reason I have my computer sitting in front of me is I think that the way we define mental states and choice is going to be a really important part of our conversation. Okay. Because we say mental states, and oftentimes we think of those as negative experiences, like instantly depression comes to the top of um, the list of things when we say mental states. And I also think that when we say choice, we need to really look at what what do we mean by choice, and we can reject these definitions, but I think we should at least start with them. Okay. So, um, one definition of mental choice is it's a noun, it's a psychological or mental condition in which the qualities of a state are relatively consistently even through the state itself, though the state itself may be dynamic. An example would be a manic state of mind. So... A psychological, so this is internal um, condition, so it's going to be uh, multiple factors probably relating to an ongoing condition, or I might say experience, which has some consistency to it over a length of time, um, I think is, is a fair definition. And then choice here, choice could be defined as an act of selecting or making a decision when faced with two or more possibilities. Uh, okay. So I would say that within our conversation that I might take that definition and like slightly alter it to say that I have the ability to influence it to a degree in given more than one option. Okay. That's fair. No, what what did you think about the the setup that I gave? Yeah. Okay. So I think that the setup that you provided, um, is fair. I think that oftentimes Within our social constructs, we experience a mental state. Um, I think that we're always within a mental state. We're never outside of a mental state, except maybe when we're unconscious. Maybe, I don't know how I would define, probably not. We're always subject to a mental state. There's not an escape from it, which I'm aware of, um, except death. So my thought would be that the question then is like, are we always in mental states? Yes. Do we have influence over that? And I think that everybody on the planet would say, I have at least 1% influence over my mental state. Like, I don't think that there's anybody who would say, I am totally subjective to my mental state. And coming from a family um, who has therapists in it and knowing them and having them as clients, I think that even the most um, extreme... A therapist that believes that everything is like genetic or everything is chemical, like the even the most extreme, and I would say that somebody still has at least some control over their state of being, and that might be, you know, their diet. Um, that might be just within the moment choosing not to have these really negative thoughts or to like engage with your thoughts and state something differently to yourself. Like I'm not worthless and just say it out loud, so it may not be right. as effective to be. But I think that everybody agrees with choice. So if we take our initial premise saying that people have choice over their mental state, I mean, I agree. I I would guess so far from what you're saying, you would agree. And I also think that given the definitions we've set up, everybody would agree that you have at least some choice over your mental state. So then I think the question is not yes or no. The question is to what degree? To what degree and then to what end? Yes. 
Yeah, so I think to what degree, we should probably start there, because I know that things such as meditation and mindfulness or things that are those things masquerading as other methods okay. of coping skills um, can often produce similar effects. Something that I've been doing recently has been, uh, I'm simply, maybe you would call it laziness, maybe you would call it prudence, but I no longer desire to give mental energy towards certain things that are causing me anxiety. Um, there are certain things that will, will cause me intense anxiety that I find to be, um, whether or not they are legitimate, I no longer have the desire to fuel them mm -hmm. or to acknowledge them or to turn my mental spotlight onto them and like stare at them for an entire day and just let it eat me alive. It's like, I'm sorry, uh, time's up. <laughs> Focusing on other things now. You're out! So that's, I, I think that's that's one way I've done it, and it's been extremely helpful. Like, I think from an anxiety perspective, mm -hmm. um, that's given me a lot more control over that particular situation. Um, and even looking inward, I'll see, like, oh, I'm currently anxious. Mm -hmm. And then I'll think, I don't want to be. And I'll stop. And it's not always immediate, you know, because there's physiological responses that you have, whether it's shortness of breath or elevated heart rate or feelings of adrenaline or fight or flight. That doesn't necessarily go away immediately, but it's, I would say, almost all of the time that it is thoughts that are perpetuating that mental state. And if you simply stop thinking those thoughts, it becomes quickly passing away. See, I would say that like, I agree with most of what you said, but I think that you, you bought, like, the statement you made is mostly true, but for clarity's sake, okay. you said that thoughts are always the cause of these mental states. And I don't know that thoughts are... Thoughts are always what sustain the mental state. I don't know that... I guess it would depend on how you define a thought. I would think of a thought as it must be conscious to be considered a thought? Not necessarily. Okay. So, for example, you might think, um, you know, my my mother might have cancer. Yeah. She doesn't, but she might. Who knows? Um, that thought might occur to you. But the discursive part, aspect of that, where you are running through that scenario in your head for multiple hours. Yeah perpetuating a state of anxiety and fear, that is a choice. Well, okay, so let's define thought. So I just looked it up. It says the process of thinking, cognition, a product of thinking or mental activity, the facility of thinking or reasoning, intellectual activity, or the production of a particular time, of a particular time or group. So to me that means like it has to be done like in the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. Okay. Because I think... I believe that there are times that you are, like, I, my favorite example of this is, like, you wake up in the morning, you haven't had time to have any conscious thoughts yet. Like, you just woke up, your brain hasn't fully booted up yet. And sometimes, at least for me, like, I can just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. And um, in the proverbial sense of, like, I have, like, today's just a terrible day, I don't know what's going on, right. but I feel I'm in a, ment a negative mental state which wasn't induced by thoughts, it was induced by something else. And I also think that there are people who suffer from a chemical imbalance 
who are in these negative mental states, not specifically because of their thought constructs, um, but because they have a, a chemical imbalance, which is forcing, I don't know if that would be the right word, but outside of their control for them to have a mental, negative mental experience. That doesn't mean that um, they have to engage with it in a certain way, but right. just they are predisposed. So I'd say that often negative mental states are caused by thoughts, but not exclusively if we define thoughts as like this prefrontal cognition. Yeah, you know, so for the, for the people who are on SNRIs or SSRIs and they have that chemical imbalance, for those who are legitimate, um, and yes, that is a chirp, deal with it. Uh, I think that you can't discount the value of being able to augment your mental states on your own. Um, you know, uh, a chemical imbalance with medication without therapy is you're not going to get anywhere. Um, well, uh, I go, I'll disagree again. That I think that I, there are lots of, I would say that everybody suffers from a mental condition or a mental state of being and some of those are diagnosed and some of those are not. Um, but I think that there are people that I know who would have probably been had diagnosable depression which have brought themselves out of that without therapy or without um, uh, some sort of prescription. I'm going to jerk the wheel here, okay. go down a different lane and see if this gets us anywhere else. I'm interested in the ramifications of doing so. So for okay. example... So um, let's just close the loop on this and move to that. Okay. So like to close the loop, we say definitely has, there are choice, there is choice, yes. no question. Um, there's a varying amount of choice based on you know pre-existing conditions, maybe mental aptitude or training, and it starts from at least a non-zero amount and goes somewhere more than that. Maybe not total control, but right. maybe something. Okay, so yes, we have choice. Now let's talk about the ramifications. So I look at this as beneficial, except for the fact that then you are choosing a mental state that is often a reaction. So if a reaction is unjustified, for example, if sure. you become anxious at something that you ought not to be, yeah, having that control is great. If you become guilty at something that you should become guilty about, yes. and then you choose, using this, this power to augment your mental state, to no longer be guilty about that, yes. are you at fault? Oh, what a good question. And so now I'm referring to like the multiplicity of mental states. Yeah and our control over them. Because if we do have some semblance of control, yep. um, you know, are you depressed because a loved one died and now you're choosing not to be? Is that like how cold-hearted of you? Right. You know, um, are you anxious about something that, that, you, that you did wrong and now you choose not to be? Is that wrong of you? Right. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that? That's, yeah. It, that is so complicated. <laughs> it, it could be like thesis, like... Every student sees this paper for a year and yeah. still not plumb the depths of it. Great, so we're going to get it in 15 minutes <laughs> here on Black Mystery <laughs> Here we are. Are you kidding me? We get nowhere in 15 minutes ever on Black Mystery This Mars. is true. Uh, it seems to me that 
there, so there's a lot of kind of presuppositions flying around in that. So like one presupposition I would have is that emotions and mental states are not sim the same, but they are similar. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But I don't know that I agree. So All right. juxtapose anxiety with sadness. Um, is one a mental state and the other an emotion? Yeah, so I think that there... Let's see what this happens when I say this out loud. Um, <laughs> I think that you can um, have an emotion of anxiety, and you can also be experiencing that anxiety internally. Um, but I've also had the emotion of anxiety, like even a physical emotion of you know butterflies in the stomach, jittery, feeling cold, um, maybe a little nauseous, and internally being experiencing a totally different thing. So the the experience of both being anxious on an emotional level but on an internal level like below the level of emotion you might call this the subconscious level or um, I, I don't know what it, in buddhism it's often called like the gita then at this level you're not experiencing anxiety those bodhisattvas that picked <laughs> up on that um and so oh, i would and i only use that word because i don't know another word to describe like this Right. Under the level of emotion, uh, the best word picture I feel was brought by a Mr. Spock in in Star Trek during some I don't know um, episode where he was leading somebody through an emotion. He's like, okay, so imagine an ocean, lots of waves on the surface, but as soon as you dip under the surface, the ocean is totally calm. Uh, and most of us live our lives on the surface of this ocean as a little raft being like flung this way and flung that way. Right. But we all have this like part of us which is under the waves of the ocean, which the ocean can be roiling above us and not roiling above us. And there's a part which is affected and thrown about. Agreed. But there's a part which is also not affected by the roiling. So that's why I say motions and mental states are connected but not concretely, and that you can be experiencing a mental state and emotion which mismatch. Like, I can both be experiencing anxiety and peace at the same time, just not in the same way. So, unfortunately, Mr. Spock does not understand longitudinal ways, because <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. But I see what he's saying. Yes. I've heard that before. I, I don't know that I can hop on board with that, but I don't okay. necessarily know that it's necessary for the conversation. Sure. Because the conversation is more along the lines of if you can control it, ought you. Well, okay, so here's, and I think it is important for the conversation, and here's why. So um, let's talk about a loved one dying and having that that reaction. Yeah. So let's say a loved one dies, I, you know, I'm in the hospital with them and they die and then I can instantly fly into the state of like deep depression and right. sadness. And that might be healthy for some people um, to like fall into this pit as long as they come back out of it in a reasonable amount of time. Like yeah. that, that arc could be really effective um, for some people. But I don't know that that arc is effective or needed for everybody to the same amount. And that if you were able to maybe allow your emotions and your experience to separate, and so emotionally you're this like, I can't believe this person is gone, I wanted to do all these things, I maybe have regrets, you can ha be on this emotional roller coaster and yet have an internal experience which doesn't track that emotional roller coaster. And I wouldn't say that that's wrong or that's unwise or unskillful, I would just say that's a different approach to it. Or when it comes to the idea of guilt, so let's say, 
I steal something and I'm caught and I have this emotion of guilt, well, I can allow this guilt to dictate my experience or I can choose to learn from this experience and allow, uh, learn from this happening and allow my internal experience to separate from my emotions for a time um, and move past. And I also don't think that's bad or unwise. I mean, it has to be done with caution, but I don't know that it is. So and that's why I think that it is necessary, right. but maybe you see this in a way which that isn't necessary. If that's true, why it's concerning to me is because if who you are is that ocean underneath the waves, yes, and you separate the two, I feel like that is separating you. Like you, you're, you're like, well, I'm not guilty. Mm-hmm. My emotions are just guilty. Sure, it's the idea of like watching this happen to a third party, and and I, th- I think that sort of removes culpability where there should be. Sure. You know? So if you murder somebody and you're like, I'm going to separate my internal life from my outer <laughs> it's like, fuck you. <laughs> you should feel terrible, not just you on the surface, like who you are ought to feel terrible. So this, yeah, I, I understand like the thesis you're putting forward. Yeah. And I don't have a, a, a developed enough sense of kind of this separation and what these two different areas right. look like to really have a... a an accurate conversation on it but I would say um, and I, I've also read some people who like think there's this like massive disconnect between these two and I've also read people who think like there's just this infinitesimal disconnect um, the only reason that they're not the same is that they're just not um, and if you were to measure it it would be the smallest of measurements different and I've also read people who believe there isn't a difference um, and I would say that it, from the perspective of there's a massive difference between these two is that you are not your actions. Um, that you are separate from what your actions are and what make you as an individual entity is distinct from the emotions you feel, the actions you perform, and the thoughts you have. And Yeah, I, d- I disagree completely. That, that's totally fine. I'm not saying I agree with that yeah. perspective. But there are a lot of people who certainly believe um, that and there are people who are closer, which say this is like, yeah, this is almost like a, a scale coming together at a point. Um, that if you do something like if you spill your ice cream, you don't have to rip yourself apart. Yeah. But if you murder somebody, then you should rip yourself apart. Right. And the question I think then becomes, is it good to rip yourself apart? Right. So that's another interesting place I kind of wanted to take this is that. A while back, I mentioned to you when when you and I, or when I started exploring Buddhism a little deeper, mm-hmm. and you'd already been delved into it for a while, I kind of came to the conclusion that it's like, okay, great, whether or not this is true, I feel like it's just another mechanism to for us to be okay. That yeah, at, I remember this conversation. Yeah, that at bottom, it was, it was just a way for us to make ourselves okay mm-hmm. and how fickle that is and, and how it's like you know thousands of years of tradition and, and all these things and it's like whether or not it's true it's simply a way for us to not put a bullet in our heads mm-hmm. 
And I'm wondering, like, is this control that we are seeking or that we might have over our mental states the same the same way? Like, and I'm trying to hold that intention with whether or not there are any imperatives. Ought I feel guilty or anxious or depressed or negative about any of these right. things? And ought I be okay? Right. Or do I have the right to be? And it's like the ethics of that mixed with my desire to just be okay for some period of time. Yeah. Because I do see this this conversation of of control as a conversation of just increasing our hold on being okay for as much of the time as we possibly can be. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I... I would say I'm a determinist, so it's all screwed anyways. Um, so I would like... <laughs> Thank you for watching. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was just saying, like, if this a, was a balloon, it's popped, so everything is done anyways. Okay. So, like, after I realize and accept that, I then move on to say, okay, post-balloon popping, yeah. like, now what do I do? Um, Damn. And so that's a tension which I always struggle with, and that's why understanding the difference between qualitative truth and quantitative truth for me, is the most, like, I could I could not have any of these conversations, hold any of these thoughts, or have any of these experiences in my head um, as a very logical person by nature, like, very black and white person by nature. I could say orange. Um, <laughs> hashtag orange cube group. Um, if, if I wasn't taught um, and didn't learn the difference between qualitative and quantitative truth. Yeah. So, like, quantitatively, it's, like, it's all. It's just chemicals and electrons running around my head, and whatever I'm doing sure. is from a mechanical and chemical standpoint. What's going to happen and will continue to happen. And if I, you know, run my car into a cliff on the way home tonight, then um, I wasn't in Michigan because there aren't any cliffs, and <laughs> was going to happen whether I wanted it to or not. And from a qualitative standpoint, that's true, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I can either choose to stay and live in that world, which maybe is the wise thing to do. Um, or maybe isn't. And for me, it's not. And the fact that I'm still alive tells me I haven't stayed in that world. Yeah. Because if, I think once you kind of come to truly understand that, there are a few people who can stay living in that world and be okay. Yeah. I think that everybody escapes from that in some way or another. Now, they may like claim that they stay here, right. but internally they believe something. It might even be on a subconscious level about something else. So the way that I... Like, I might come to understand that is that, yes, it is another salve for the wound or it is another escape, uh, but I'm okay with that too. Um, like, if I was to uh, break my arm, um, my arm is broken, and it, the, state, the qualitative or the quantitative truth is like broken arm. Like, right. these, these things are not lined up like they should be. And I'm all right to take some qualitative approaches to that, like yeah. painkillers or putting it back in the way that it should be or wrapping it with some you know, tension to maybe help control the pain. Um, and for, so thought one, box one. Thought two is this is an idea that I've been toying with, and I have yet to decide if I believe it or not, but I certainly toy with it and have fun with it is that when we approach the world, we approach it, at least for me as a Westerner, or at least me as an individual, I approach it from the quantitative standpoint first. I say, like, quantitative is the actual truth. Agreed. And qualitative is just, like, everything else. And quantity is what matters. Quality is, like, whatever. 
but maybe that approach is incorrect. That maybe a more balanced approach is more correct. And maybe, maybe actually qualitative truth in some, not all, some instances is more important than quantitative truth. Maybe those two roles should shift, maybe. Or maybe there should be some balance. I think that the real answer is there's some balance um, between the two of them. And coming from a life where I've spent the vast majority of it, like 100% quantitative, okay, 95% quantitative and like right. 5% qualitative. Now I have, I have like some siphons moving stuff around. Yeah. And I would say that your question with the perspective of quantitative truth versus qualitative truth is answered in the we're all fucked anyway, so give up now um, standpoint. So from a qualitative, because I've been thinking that exact same thing recently, um, more and more every day, of um, the, it doesn't make religious truths any more true quantitatively. Mm -hmm. But there is a depth of truth from a qualitative standpoint that is worth having. Right, and maybe they interplay and influence one another, too. Yeah, agree. Uh, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe. maybe. I'm not saying that. I'm not making a statement here. I'm saying it's a possibility. And that's, I think, I think that's if if you listen to, and this is, again, <laughs> All right, it's been uh, 25 minutes. It's been 25 minutes. <laughs> or however long. <laughs> if you listen to... Sam Harris's two podcasts with Jordan Peterson, mm -hmm. um, which are like my two favorite intellectuals in one podcast, definitely go listen to it. They talk about what is truth. For the first whole podcast, they get hung up on what is truth. And mm -hmm. I think they are talking about what we are talking about right now, and that is religion might be true, but not in the same way that water is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Yeah. And I think Sam was just having an aneurysm because he's like, <laughs> but it's not true. And Jordan Peterson's like, it is, but not in the way that you want it yeah, to be. Exactly. And it's valuable to make that distinction. But if, it's, if that's the case, that it is quantitative truth, I'm sorry, qualitative truth, because everything's fucked great. Moving on. Now on to the, to the qualitative standpoint. Um, do we have any imperatives to act in a certain way with our mental states? Awesome question. What do you think about that? It's easy to want to like export this to a Ten Commandments, you know? <laughs> Say like, well, I'll just refer to this list here that yep. tells me how to do. Um, there's reference. There's a great um, a buddy of mine on Facebook just said this. He says, we must be our own mechanics and disassemble ourselves and reassemble, or disassemble our equipment and reassemble it in the way we deem most efficient. And it reeks of moral relativism and postmodernism, but I think it's also extremely true. Um, there comes a time in your life where hopefully you become self-aware enough to acknowledge how you were put together by the multitude of different mechanics in your life, you get to disassemble yourself very painfully and then put yourself back together in the way that you deem most efficient. But that doesn't answer the question, what ought you do? Mm -hmm. It's really just in your best interest. How do you assemble yourself? Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to, I guess here, maybe we could approach it from a different way. Are negative states of mind justified? I mean, 
the answer would obviously be sometimes. So I think really this question becomes, when you are in a negative state of mind, if it is unjustified, you are, you would be acting ethically to choose to not have it. If you have a negative state of mind and it is justified, imposing your will on it to change it would be uh, unskillful, we'll just say, or unwise. Uh, yeah. Yes and no. Um, there's so many of like, yes, that's true in one sense, but no, that's true. Not true okay. And I guess like the, to provide some like context to this, um, there is in Eastern philosophy this idea, and it's often like called the yoga ethic of niyamas and yamas and niyamas, which are essentially like the five do's and the five don'ts. Um, and one of the do's um, or the don'ts is ahimsa, which is nonviolence, the idea right. of not being violent. Which, when I say out loud in a Western context, like usually means don't stab anybody with a knife. Um, but that idea of nonviolence goes so much further than non-knife stabbing and is primarily lived out in the way that we treat ourselves as beings. Wow. And within that <clears throat> within this ethical structure, which may or may not be valuable, the idea of doing self-harm or being violent to the self is never justified, ever. There is not a single justification for being violent. Now, there are times where a, quote, violent action might be considered more justifiable, but it may not be violence at that point. Um, it would be like self-defense, quote-unquote, in this in analogous yeah, self-defense. It's, it's, yeah, it doesn't use Western words to have this conversation, right. so I can't use Western words to have, like, it doesn't Just use English speaking words. speaking in Sanskrit, I'm uh, sure all the listeners <laughs> will understand. And hopefully they don't, because I don't know how to pronounce anything uh, correctly. Um, my chanting instructors have a field day with me. So I would say that in that perspective, there's never... Hi. Hey. Uh, oh, Lowe's sent me a piece of mail. I wonder if that's important. Uh, I don't know what I bought at Lowe's. Um, from that perspective, it's never justified to be violent to yourself, and there's never a, a cause to do that. And But when we're talking about the idea of ahimsa, we're talking about that within the confines of this inner being, this, you know, Gita, this sub, sub part of the human. The ocean, not the waves. Yeah, the, yeah, underneath the waves. And so maybe there's a time to experience negative emotions. Um, maybe we can give some examples. So, maybe. So I think perhaps we'll see how quick you were to engage <laughs> your Buddhist uh mechanisms versus me okay so we're recording a podcast yes person i've never met in my entire life you probably know who this person is okay uh doesn't knock opens door yep says sorry makes yeah. a hell of a lot of noise drops an envelope on the table closes the door and moves out yep now like in order it was it was like anger anxiety disregard moving back toward peace some humor back to okay again. Okay. And that was all a choice. Usually it would be negative state immediately, sustained negative state for several minutes. Mm -hmm. um, because how could this person, you know, be so inconsiderate, yada, yada, yada. Right. So I think that would be a justified way of dealing with the situation. I feel like 
there not be many people who said like, no, you should have flipped the table and tracked her down <laughs> and given her a scolding, you know? All right. Good luck flipping this table. That's going to yeah. be hard. <laughs> That's, you know, scenario number one. Scenario yeah. number two, um, give me, you gotta, you gotta give me scenario number two. Okay. Yeah, um, so scenario number two, you're on uh, 96 headed towards Detroit. Okay, there you go. Um, it's right as rush hours finishing and you're running late to something. Somebody cuts you off, yeah. forcing you to miss your exit. So you need to just move on. Okay. What's, how, how's that going to play out? I, I think it should be the same. Okay. I think it should be the same. What about something that happens internally? Um, okay. Perhaps like a lashing out of malice. Like... Um, you suddenly feel the urge to just like wish ill upon somebody. Yeah, I. It, for me, that's usually caused by something. Right. So it's caused by something. You then have this internal mental state that is that arises. You have the option to control that mental state. Right. Do you? Do I? Like, like, is it like, is it something that you ought to do? Um, so the question of oughts have become a whole hell of a lot harder for me over the last year. Damn Kant. I know. <laughs> and the, and well, it's, yeah, damn ex-Protestant. Um, and so, like, when I was, like, a hardcore Baptist meets Presbyterian, like, <laughs> oughts were easy. I could ought yeah. you, you up one side and down the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, because I had a standard to measure to. Right. I don't currently have a good standard to measure to, so the question of ought becomes a whole lot harder. And... For me, the only oughts that I have are based off of the person that I want to become. So my ought would be... Wait, no, hold on. That was very hold profound. Hold on. Okay. Your only oughts are based on the person you want to become. Yeah, I say that flippantly. I feel like, yeah, that may or may not be true. It was profound to me. Okay. okay I'm not sure that I agree with what words that came out of my mouth. <laughs> But for the remainder of our conversation, I will pretend that I agree with what I just said, and I will I will mull it over later. This is the epitome of this <laughs> podcast. Um, Continue. And so, when you ask that question, ought I to you know keep my emotions in, right. in or my thoughts in check? I say I ought to because that helps me align with whatever I'm trying to align, like become more of the person I want to become. But maybe somebody else isn't trying to become that. Nobody else is trying to become the same person that I'm trying to become. So their oughts might be different. Um, like maybe for them, they have a really hard time feeling or expressing any emotion at all. And they're just this like totally stoic um, individual. So that like the process of feeling those emotions is actually a really good thing for them. And they need to double down on those emotions. So I don't know that there's a clean answer to that question, as to almost every question. Yeah. What about guilt? Because raised in Christian households, that is, there's an abundance of guilt. Okay, just as a total aside, this has nothing to do sure. with anything we're talking about. Would you, it like, 14-year-old Nick, have called your Catholicism, or would you have self-identified as a Christian? Uh, no, actually, I kind of looked down on Christianity. Okay. I thought it was less than Catholicism. That's what I thought, because you said, yeah, yeah Christians, and I'm like, that's, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I thought I thought if you were a Christian, you were like, mm, close, no cigar, sorry, yeah. buddy. That's what I, okay, that's what I thought. Um, but I was so a little confused when, you, when we did that. Um, so, what's the question? 
So I, should you, let me ask you the question, at least the way. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. So it seems like, is there a time that it's justified to feel guilt? Yes. When? When you do something wrong. Anything wrong or something majorly wrong? Right. Um, that's where it's, I think I, I can't even take it any further than that because that's where I've been hung up. Okay, Lately. and then yes. I would say what's wrong. What? Yeah, what is, we'll save that question for a different <laughs> podcast. Uh, what is wrong, but I think it, it's, there are times where it's no longer serviceable or no longer useful or skillful to become unwound over things that are that you have done that are wrong, but are not of significance. Um, that it is more skillful to maintain sanity or composure or uh, usefulness by saying, okay, screwed up, moving on. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. I feel I feel this guilt, and we are moving on. Yes. Um, and then I think... Is that just a way for me to be okay? Mm -hmm. Am I just trying to get out of this feeling of guilt? Mm -hmm. Something I've noticed is that I am addicted to the sensation of guilt. That could be problematic. It, and it is. And it's not an, an addiction in the same way that one might be addicted to crack. I know, I've been there. But we're going to pause for this. We're going we're gonna to take a moment and be zen. Intermission. Intermission. We're going to be zen now. And wait for the sounds to... Gaggling. The gaggling. I was about to ask the audience if they could still hear us. To, to give me license to continue talking. <laughs> you, you can always ask. Can you, can you guys still hear me? Because I'm going to keep talking. So this is where we've crossed the line. There's talking to yourself, and there's talking to imaginary people, and there's talking to imaginary people expecting a response. Yes. So we've crossed a few lines currently. Please hold. This happened last time too, didn't it? But it is an argument. Mm -hmm. So there's a few conversations between those two that aren't an argument. Ah. Now we're happy again. That must mean a client walked in. I'm building whole mental images of yeah, what's too. happening in the hallway. I can't tell. We should put a hallway. 